Mindfulness Mode 472. The most important first step of dealing with anxiety is to recognize it, to give it a name and to call it out. Welcome to Mindfulness Mode. Hey, Mindful Tribe, this is Bruce Langford, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach. Great to have you with us. Hey, have you ever had a challenge with social media, feeling like you're a little overwhelmed with it? Well, you know what? I have a tool that can help with that. It's called Meet Edgar, and it can help with your posting. It can help to automate your posts, and it sort of puts your social media on autopilot if you're trying to get the word out there about some of your work that you do in your business. Well, if you want, you can get the second month free. They already give you the first month free. Uh, Go to mindfulnessmode.com forward slash Edgar to get that second month free. And Edgar is spelled E-D-G-A-R. Today, sit back, relax, because I truly enjoyed the interview and I think you will too. So, Here it is. Hey, Mindful Tribe. I've been reading a wonderful book that's filled with stories and wisdom and insight. And the book is called A Moment of Insight. And we are so fortunate to have the author of the book with us today. This is going to be such a great discussion. I've got Dr. Bargave with me today, Dr. Suvrat Bargave. Dr. Bargave, are you in mindfulness mode today? You know, I am trying more and more to be in mindfulness mode, and I think I'm, I'm kind of there today. And you really sound like you are, in spite of the fact that we had a few technical difficulties. I can always tell if a person truly is into mindfulness because we go through technical challenges and some people get very flustered, but not you, Dr. Bargave. (laughs) What, What does mindfulness mean to you? Mindfulness to me means so much, but at the very base of it, mindfulness to me means an awareness, awareness of the self that really matters the most, the the one that is constant and observing as opposed to the self that I think I used to give a lot of attention to, which was that chattering self that's always critiquing and naming and judging. So uh, to me, mindfulness is really awareness of the other self, the self that really matters. And in your book, you really describe that chattering self in a way that I could certainly identify with. I want to share a little bit about you with our audience. Dr. Suvrat Bhargave, MD, is a renowned and respected educator, speaker, and board-certified psychiatrist. He specializes in child and adolescent psychiatry and has an uncanny ability to relate to a multi-demographic audience because of his deep level of empathy. Suvrat is affectionately known for his relatable expertise and is highly sought after to lecture on such challenging topics as personal growth, effective parenting, relationship satisfaction, and mental health conditions. So it's really a pleasure to be able to talk to you, Dr. Bargave, because your book spoke to me so clearly. It, you know, it just is filled with stories and and shares with us so much of your wisdom. And uh, I want to start with some of your stories. I know that one of your stories is about a boy named, uh, I think it was, Jay, let me see. Yeah, no. Jay. Yeah, a boy named Jay. Yeah, that's right. Can we start with you just telling us a little bit about Jay's story? 
Definitely. So, and I appreciate your saying that. To me, when I started to write this book, I really wanted it to be a conversation. And what I didn't want, I didn't want this book to be a textbook and I didn't want it to be preachy. And so to keep the voice in the way that I was hoping for it to be, I, I realized that I often learned the best through stories and I cherish my role as a storyteller as well. So these stories that I've put in there are compilation stories of thousands of patients and, and they're meant to represent all the different people that I, I'm so privileged to see in my practice. And so Jay is a representation of so many children who come to see me who are feeling anxious uh, and doubting themselves and really paralyzed by their own fears. And so this young boy was someone who came to see me with his mother. And I was saying in the book that he, just like all the other kids or most of the other kids in my practice, it wasn't his choice to be there, right? As happens with so many kids, they are subjected to what we as the adults in their life feel they need to do or where they need to go. And this was really, really hard for him. It was hard for him because the thing that he dreaded the most was any kind of a spotlight on him. And now his panic symptoms had come to the point where we had to, we had to do something. And so he was brought in to see me. So, so the story begins as it does for so many young people and so many adults as well, in that they view the appointment itself as something that they've been dreading. It wasn't until much later that he could view it as, as being something helpful to him. But the other part of his story that, that I think is a representation of so many patients is as our fear mounts and as it builds, and again, as that chatter you and I were talking about gets even faster and louder in our heads, our bodies will reflect that. And so in the course of the session, I witnessed him having a full-blown panic attack. And when his hand went up to his mouth, I knew he was doing everything he could to contain this chaotic feeling that he had inside of him. And so to go back to a point about mindfulness, I think if we can start mindfulness with the awareness of what it is our bodies are even trying to tell us in the moment. If we can actually, instead of thinking about our bodies as betraying us in that moment, think of it as our body's way of trying to get our attention so that we can actually release something. To me, from a mindfulness standpoint, that was one thing that sticks out for, for Jay's story. And so we did, when I recognized that he was in the midst of this panic attack, um, we did something together that I suggest that patients often do, but I'll also tell you in my own practice is something that I had done for many, many, many years, uh, even before I became a psychiatrist. And that was some really mindful breathing, some very mindful, deep breathing. So he and I sat together, we, we went outside. And just as we walked out, I, I tried to express this in the book, but you could just see as soon as he walked outside and the sun hit him, there was a release. So already his body had started to respond to the fact that he was listening to his body. And, and then you could tell that the gasp that he took was something much bigger than what he had allowed himself to do within my office. And so we sat down together and I asked him to really think about his breathing and focus on his breathing. And I pointed out to him that a deep breath meant that your shoulders go all the way back. And so I started to do the same thing and he started to mimic me. And then I said, and when you breathe out, you, you feel it. You feel it right here in your gut and you feel it, you know, your stomach sort of drop and and he could see that and then he could, see, he could mimic that as well. And then after a few of those really good deep breaths, I just started to use two words. I started to use one word on the inhale and one word on the exhale. And he just went along with it. And then as he went along with it, I could see him mouth the word. 
So he understood that we were going to say that same word again on the inhale and again do the same word on the exhale. Um, and, and physically and in that space, we really both found ourselves connecting. And so the lesson for me and the lesson that I'm trying to pass on to the reader is, again, that connection between our, our, our bodies and our minds. And then as we get later into the book, the connection even deeper within your soul. But, but the body-mind, that's what Jay represents. I really love that you talked about a three-word question in your book and how your grandfather used to ask you this, who am I? <laughs> and then you kind of worked through that, you know, well, I'm a, I'm a student. Well, I might not always be a student, so that's not really who I am. Let's talk about who am I? Why is that a good place to start with people? Well, because so much of uh, what brings people into seeing me has to do with what they are going through and they associate what they're going through with either their current circumstance or what they are feeling or this pattern of thinking that they've come to kind of relate as a habit that isn't working for them. And instead, you know, because any of those things I just described, the way you're feeling or thinking or what you're going through is transient. It's an up and down. It's, it's riding a roller coaster, as it were. And so if you can, if we can come to a place of understanding who am I, what's so wonderful about that understanding of who am I is that I am much more constant than all of that. I am much more constant than what I'm feeling right now. I'm much more constant than what I'm thinking in this moment. I'm even much more constant than anything I'm going through in my life right now. So it, as a way of having a solid foundation, as a way of having something I can rely on in the midst of an up and down life, uh, I think you have to answer, who am I? And then I think the other reason to answer, who am I? And this was the point that my grandfather was trying to make for me. Who am I is not only something that's constant, it is something that is constantly and wonderfully and in his expression to me is divinely good. And so for whatever I believe is bad in my life or in my moment, deep within me is something that is constantly good. And that's why I need to be able to understand that and tap into that and be reassured that who I am, who I am is something I can rely on always. And you're right. I tried to answer my grandfather in so many different ways as a kid. And, you know, from appealing to his vanity to answering the, the thing that popped into my head when he first asked me the question again and again. And, and the ironic thing is, as I just described in the book, he even gave me the answer. Yes. And yet when he gives me the answer, I still, it, it just went right over me, right? It went oh, over sure. me. And, 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 you know, at that age, I was kind of relieved. I thought, okay, now that he's giving me the answer, well, then we're done, right? We're not going to do this again. <laughs> yeah. And little did I know that that answer that he gave me uh, would come into play so many years later when I sat in my deepest point in my life and my most lonely point in my life. And it really became the uh, life vest, really, that I held on to. You're a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Can we talk about that? Please. Yeah, I would like yeah. to. Share with us how that shaped your life and what effect it had on you. So, you know, I talk about much like Jay in the book, I talk about how so many of us uh, from an early point in our lives have dealt with a doubtful filter, right? An, an anxious temperament, if you will. And so we're constantly second guessing and what ifing and making sure that we're measuring up to whatever is going on around us and trying to please people. And so I was someone who was born with that anxious temperament and was always so aware of what I was thinking and feeling and, and what I was doing, hoping that I wasn't doing it all wrong. And then when this aspect of my life 
came into play with, from a young age on because I was probably six or seven the first time that I was abused and this, my perpetrator lived with us. And so it was something that went on over the course of several years. Now, what I carried around was not just the doubt about what I'm thinking and feeling and what I've done, but I'm also carrying around what was done to me. And so what that resulted in was, I say it was a rooting of my shame, right? And, and to me, guilt and shame, I finally have come to understand the difference between the two. But as a child, you, don't, you mix the two up. And so guilt is regret for what I've done, shame being remorse for who I am. And as many children, I had mixed the two together. What I did was a reflection of who I was. And what was done to me was a reflection of who I was. So my shame started early on. And then bullying, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, kind of cemented that. It kind of confirmed to me that this doubt that I had now seen in myself, this contaminated, defective piece of me, when I was bullied, I felt like people were seeing that. So it really, it shaped a lot of my story. I know I've heard you talk on the podcast before about uh, the, the shared belief you and I have, that is that we live this story that we've been telling ourselves for a very long time. And, and, and that once upon a time starts way back in childhood. And so with my experiences and with my filter, my story started very early on that I, that I wasn't good enough. And then everything from that point on seemed to be evidence for, for that story. So I say in the book that, you know, we're, we're not very good scientists when it comes to our life stories, because uh, scientists are supposed to throw a hypothesis out there and then start collecting data one way or the other. Um, but, but we, um, in our tendencies as, as human beings, and certainly as anxious people, sometimes we collect very skewed data. And so I went through my day um, picking up the one or two things that I had done or said or were done to me that further cemented the fact that I wasn't good enough. I didn't notice the nine or 10 other things um, that were reassuring me. I didn't, I didn't look at those things. Now, Mindful Tribe, I want to just remind you about the book. It's called A Moment of Insight, but I didn't tell you the subtitle. It's Universal Lessons Learned from a Psychiatrist's Couch. And you can visit Dr. Hargave's website at Dr. D-R-B- and then H-A-R-G-A-V-E dot com. So visit the website, order the book. I, I highly recommend it. It's a wonderful book. Now, Dr. Hargave, I got really excited when you started talking about the five gifts. Mm-hmm. And I can see why it can help so many people. Mm-hmm. Tell Mindful Tribe about the five gifts and how this works. I would love to do that. So again, in cementing my story, I'd come to believe that I was all of this, you know, all this negativity that was going on. And so on that day that I referred to where I I was at my lowest point, um, again, the one thing I held on to was what my grandfather had said to me uh, when he finally answered, who am I? He took my hand in his and he put it over my heart and he said to me, you are God. And again, in that moment, I'm like okay, can I, can I go now? (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yes. On that lowest day, those words came back to me. And what I realized was that what he was trying to tell me was that within me was something else as well. And I needed to find out what was that other thing he was referring to because he was so convinced of that. And, And the thing about my grandfather was he was a sincere and a genuine man. And so the conviction he had behind his answer to me really overcame even my sort of fleeting 
quality of it. Um, and so I, I, I held on to that and I thought, okay, what did he mean? Because I certainly can't or I couldn't at that point accept that I am God. I mean, my goodness, where are we if I am God is what I thought. But what he really meant was there was a divinity within me. What was he talking about? What did that mean? And so the five gifts exercise was something that popped into my head on that day. And it I, I can only call it divine because I don't know where else it came from. But it was so clear to me that the objective, the objective was to list and and write down, like actually write it down on a piece of paper, what are my five gifts? And even that word gifts was really particular because I had started, I think, to say, what were my five strengths? And then I realized I didn't really feel like I had strengths. So my subconscious kind of didn't even use that word. Uh, and instead, it used the word gifts. And, and I could accept the fact that I wasn't, I hadn't somehow fallen onto this earth or I wasn't, hadn't slipped by the cracks and, and gotten onto this earth that I was actually put here and I was created. And if that was the case, then I, I must have been put here with some gifts. I didn't believe God would have put me here without that. And what was also so great about that moment is I realized that if I was going to identify my gifts, that had nothing to do with anyone else's gifts. It wasn't about my gifts compared to anyone else. It wasn't about you know looking at someone else's gifts and then trying to make my gifts become those things. These were the five gifts that I was given. So the task I gave myself uh, in, in a very specific but amazing way was write down your five gifts and you have 10 days to do it. So on the following Sunday, you had to have your five gifts done. Now, again, in hindsight, what was so great about that is I know me and I know that if I had not given myself a deadline, I may have let this assignment pass. But what is good about anxiety is we are rule followers, even if it's our own rules. And so when I gave myself a 10-day deadline, I was going to stick to it. So, and I thought that the task was, you know, rather doable. Five gifts, 10 days, you know, that average two, two days for a gift that I could do this. But if you haven't done this, or if the listeners haven't done this, I would really, really encourage you guys to, to do this, this task. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. It really was. And, and what I knew was that the gifts couldn't be a role because that's not what my grandfather told me. It's not a role. Um, it had to be a quality that I couldn't deny. It had to be something that whether a lot of people were around me or no one was around me uh, or no matter how many years I would live on this earth and no matter what age I was already, these were things that were part of me no matter what. And, and the first gift is the one that I share in the book because it popped into my head the quickest. And I thought I was like on the sprint ready to go and because the first one popped out. And the first one was empathy. I really, I really knew I had empathy. I knew that even when I didn't want to, I could feel what other people were feeling and I could connect to other people that way. And so I wrote that one down really, really quickly. The fifth one took the 10th day. And it was that night that I was sitting there and I had told my roommates that I have a big test coming up and that I was going to go in my room and lock myself in there to study. And I was really just in there writing my fifth gift down. Um, but what came of this exercise was that once I had this list and I had a written list in front of me, now it became really clear to me that I had, I had for the first 20 years of my life, not been aware of these five gifts. And, and if these were God-given gifts, then I didn't want to waste them. So, so the, the kind of next charge was, well, then if these are your gifts, then go use them, and, right? Find ways and relationships and goals and, and things in your life where you can make the most of these five gifts. And it shifted for me the intention of my day. It shifted for me the way in which I looked at myself. It shifted for me the way I collected data. 
it had done so much for me in a way that I didn't even recognize at the time. So very, it's a very powerful thing to do. And, and I describe in the book, you know, the parameters around it and what should and shouldn't um, be a part of the exercise, but, but really, really important to do. I think it changes your story. It changes your story into one of a, of a positive, uplifting story. Like I can change the world. I can help people. I can make this difference. Would you agree? Absolutely. It did that for me. And what was interesting about that is I was never really a half empty kind of person in terms of the way I looked at the world. I was incredibly empty the way I looked at myself. And so what this did for me is it changed my internal way of looking at things to match the external way in which I looked at things. Now I was going to go using my gifts, go out into this world and find out what I had to contribute. And so if it was empathy on a really bad day or even on a really good day, I woke up thinking, okay, you know what, today I think I'm going to choose empathy. I'm going to go out here and I'm going to use empathy. And, and I was so much more aware of the moments where I could, I could use that gift. And at the end of the day, and, and this is true for me even today, um, I can reflect on my day and I can go through it if I, if I chose to do it in detail. And I can realize, I, oh, I used that gift there and I used that gift there and I used that gift there. So now my measure of did I live a purposeful day was did I use a gift today? Right. Yeah, I love that. Dr. B, as you're lovingly called by your people you work with, your patients, your clients, you have a great way for people to connect with you on Facebook just by going to a moment of insight, mm-hmm. facebook.com, a moment of insight. And that's really great. Partway into the book, you started talking about anxiety and how most of the people that come to to get help from you, it's because of anxiety. And then you go ahead and you define anxiety and you talk about that. Let's talk about that. What is anxiety? I so am excited to talk to you about this because it is the thing that most people come to see me for. And whether they realize it or not, it's the condition that brings them into the office. It's the condition that I see rising the, the fastest, if you will. It's the condition that among the group that I see, because I see kids and I see teens and I see adults, it's rising the most perhaps in millennials right now. And there may be reasons behind that. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why anxiety is on the rise. And yet the most important first step of dealing with anxiety is to recognize it, to give it a name and to call it out. Because if you don't recognize it without realizing it, you fall into this way of thinking. It's a habit that we've, we've come to not even recognize, but we, we go to. And so it's, it's very empowering to be able to say, wait a second, this right now in this moment is anxiety. The way I say it in the book and the way I really describe it in my head even is anxiety just walked in the room. Do you see it? It just walked into the door. Do you see that? Uh, and that's my way of, of separating it almost as a, as a unique force that, that has entered and is trying to make its presence known to me. Whereas before, without even knowing it walked in the room, I had dropped everything I was doing and went over to feed it and massage it and and help it to, to grow. So anxiety is that feeling of being tense or on edge. For some, it means being fearful. For some, it means being pressured and panicked. For some, it means being obsessive where you get a thought stuck in your head and you can't let go of it. For some people, it means what ifing. For some people, it means constant doubting. For some people, it's a little bit of all of that that I just described. So to me, the important part is recognizing how it shows itself in your life in this moment. And I say that because Again, anxiety is a pretty insidious force. It can change the way it looks just when you think you figured it out one way. 
and come at you another way. But however you choose to recognize it and however you choose to name it, call it anxiety, call it the false alarm that I talk about in the book, or, or call it doubt, or call it a, a worry, bully, whatever, whatever phrase makes sense to you, call it out. Because if you can catch it, you might be able to not feed it as much as we otherwise would. So, you know, if we can think of anxiety as a series of what if, you know, think about what ifing is every what if leads to another what if leads to another what if. And so being able to recognize it at the very first what if and say, okay, that's what this is. That's what my body's doing right now. It's telling me that, hey, heads up, it just walked in the room. Let me, let me choose or try to choose to not feed it. Let me try to not attach the next what if to that what if. And instead, let me try to actually turn my pattern by doing these other strategies that I've come to realize work for me. And so to me, it's the challenge for me and the person in the room is let's really get to know you so well that we know that as soon as you recognize it, we'll know what to do instead. And it's different for different people, but let's come up with the strategies that work for you and empower you to not only recognize the anxiety, but then make other choices. Right. That all makes so much sense. I want to move back to the topic of bullying. Do you have a story you can share with us, Dr. B, about this topic of bullying and how mindfulness can help get you through it? Mm -hmm. No, thank you. I have so many stories when I would think back to of which one I wanted to share because I've heard your podcast so many times and I knew that might be a question you would ask me. And what kept coming up in my head, even though I had these long moments of of things that, that I had gone through, especially as a child, is the connection going back to the, the childhood abuse. That to me had seemingly told me that I was defective in all kinds of ways. And so when, when people would bully me, you know, sometimes it was the way I looked sometimes. And that's where the hair story comes in to play mm-hmm. in the book, right? The frizzy hair. And oh my gosh, yeah. everyone's looking at my frizzy hair. And so that would trigger that. Sometimes they would tease me about the way I spoke. And then that would kind of trigger things for me. But the ones that probably triggered my shame the greatest was when kids threw out slurs about, you know, sexuality and, you know, you're this and you're that and you're this and you're that. Because of what, of my secret, because of what I was carrying around, those words meant something so much more than those kids could have realized. Because it really brought back, I mean, now I can think back to it as a psychiatrist and give it some words and realize that it triggered for me almost like flashbacks of when they would say these words about, gosh, I was with this man in this way, and, and now they're seeing that. And, and so for me, it, it really would trigger big, big things for me inside of me. So where I think mindfulness would have come in handy in those times, and where certainly from the point that I started to understand who am I, it came into play was that in those moments, I can instead go back to the real self, again, the awareness of my real self, and that my real self didn't care. It didn't care what my sexuality was. It didn't care what I had gone through. It didn't care certainly what my hair looked like today. Um, It it was something much more, again, constant and observing and non-judging and not naming and not critiquing and and so, so from that point on in my later life, it was very helpful to be able to, look, to work through those bullying times. Because, you know, again, what I say in the book is we have to go backwards and deconstruct our story. And that means you have to feel it completely too. And so, of course, I had to go back and in some sense, relive the bullying that I had gone through in order to fully release it. But now with the foundation of, I know me now. 
I know me now. So nothing they're going to have said to me is ever going to trigger again in me what it used to trigger. Wow, that's awesome. That really is. As we move forward in the interview, I'd like to ask you five quick answer questions. The first one is this. Who is one person who has influenced mindfulness in your life? Well, besides my grandfather, I would say that the next person might have been an author and now mentor and friend of mine. He wrote Many Lives, Many Masters, and that's Dr. Brian Weiss. Dr. Brian Weiss, the interesting thing about his story is that uh, Many Lives, Many Masters came into my life when I was 20 years old. And I don't talk about this in the book. I'll have to... Maybe book two will have this. But my cousin, who was also 20 at the time, passed away in a freak accident. And talk about taking my sense of self and throwing it out the window. I just thought, you know, goodness will come later in my life and it'll all be worth it and, and all of that. And so I started looking for ways of understanding how this could happen. And my aunt, whose son it was who passed away, gave me this book, Many Lives, Many Masters. And it was about a psychiatrist who was working with a client on her fears. And in the course of trying everything else, he then chose to do hypnotherapy and had her go back to the moment where her fear first began. And to cut to the chase, she ended up describing an incident that it turns out was from a past life, or at least what he believed and she believed and understood to be a past life. So all that to tell you that when I read that at the age of 20, what it did plant in me in terms of a seed was, maybe I am something more than just the story I've been telling myself. Maybe there is more to me. If my soul really is a big, thick book of stories, then maybe the Suvrat story is just one of them. Um, and, and just having that doubt served me really well. And then later to become a psychiatrist uh, and then to be trained in hypnotherapy and then suddenly realize, wait a second, I, I'd read this 20 years ago. Uh, it came back into my life. That became my fascination with finding ways to go within, which then led to, for example, reading the autobiography of a yogi and self-realization fellowship about going within. So, so I can now reflect on the, the snowball that came with it, but it wasn't such a short answer to your question, but Brian Weiss <laughs> and Many Lives, Many Masters maybe started some of that. Yeah, thanks for that. Dr. Bhargave, tell us how mindfulness has affected your emotions. And I know you've already touched on it, but maybe you could sum it up in 30 seconds or so. Mm -hmm. So mindfulness has given me a way to fully feel, but not be stuck in my feeling and allow it to flow. And that's something very different than what I used to do. And I'm grateful for it for that. And you already talked about breathing. So I'm going to move to the next question and about a book. And would that be the book, Many Lives, Many Masters? Or do you have a different book you'd like to recommend? No, I think the book would be Many Lives, Many Masters. Although I also mentioned the autobiography of a yogi. Um, yes. That was another one that came into my life years, years later. But it was, you know, the story of someone I consider to be a guru of mine. That's Paramahansa Yoganandaji. Um, and the teaching was all about, again, you are so much more. All you need is within and you are something so much more. So that would be another book I would suggest. Great. Yeah, I'll put that in our show notes at mindfulnessmode.com. So that's great. And is there an app? which you would recommend to us or to any of your patients that could help with mindfulness? I wish I had a great answer to that question. What I will tell you is apps is not something that I rely on too much. But what I am appreciative of is when I ask young people in my practice, they have suggestions for me about different, different apps, uh, which I write down. Now, again, it's not a daily part of my practice. I, I couldn't pass it on to your listeners today, but I'm grateful for them. And I'm glad that especially young people today 
are finding apps that allow for them to uh, settle down their thoughts and find a different way of looking at things. And I'm so grateful that I've found your book and found you a moment of insight, Universal Lessons Learned from a Psychiatrist Couch. I will be coming back and coming back to this book because I just felt it was such great wisdom in in a very, very accessible form. So much fun to read the stories and and it just feels so empowering. Thanks for writing this book, Dr. Oh, Bargavet. Thank you for saying all of that. But you know what? The, the best thing anyone could ever say to me is what you said at the very end there. Thank you for writing this book. Because the intention of a moment of insight when I put it out there was that, you know, please allow for whoever needs it to have it. Please allow for them to take from it what they need. And then please allow for them to simply pass it on to someone else. So when you say thank you, writing this book. It just means all of that to me. And I'm so, so grateful for that. Can I tell your listeners really quickly where they can get the book? Of course you can. So the book is available on Amazon and it's in Kindle, paperback and hardback. And it's also on Audible. And so for people who'd rather listen to a book than read the book, it's in my voice. And I will tell you there's something amazing about writing your story down, but there's something very powerful in speaking your truth. So I'm grateful that I had a chance to do that as well. So it is on Audible as well. And you were kind to mention Facebook. I want to hear back from people who've read the book. That's the whole point. Any of us who've written a book, you can relate to this too. Oh, and so you can be reached at your website, drbargave.com, D-R-B-H-A-R-G-A-V-E.com. It's been so great having you join us here, Dr. Bargave. Thanks so much for being on the show. All the best. Thank you. Bye now. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest's name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. So remember what I said at the top of the show about Meet Edgar and how that tool can help you with your social media content so much. Check it out and get, like I said, the second month free. You already get the first month free. Get the second month free with this with this uh, URL. Go to mindfulnessmode.com forward slash Edgar, E-D-G-A-R. So remember, subscribing and sharing helps keep mindfulness mode on the air. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.